And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Awfully uh, happy about this hour coming up because Ken Samples is going to be joining me. He's already on our studio line. He is a philosopher and theologian, and we have him as a regular guest once a month. And you know that if you've got questions, now's the time to get them over to me. You can send me a text question, anything you'd like to ask. We're going to focus on salvation today and the four main views of it. So I know it's going to be lively. This definitely engages uh, thoughts, and people will have questions. So 877-933-2484, that's the uh, number. I'll give it again, 877-933-2484. And again, we'll take uh, 60 seconds and bring on Ken. Welcome to the show. That music is the walk-up music for Ken Samples. He is a philosopher and theologian. Go to reasons.org to learn more about Ken. He's a regular guest on the show. He shows up uh, Mondays usually, and today's Wednesday, so we're all out of sorts today. Ken, welcome to the show. Hi, Bill. It's a pleasure to be with you again. As always, yeah. We usually have you on a Monday, and like I say, it's just kind of a big adjustment for all of us here at the studio, thinking it's Wednesday and we have Ken Samples on. Yeah, it's I'm out of sync. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> All right, here's a question, Ken. What's hotter, the surface of the sun or the center of the earth? Wow, that's uh that's a that's a really good question. I'm that's going a, to say did, do you want my answer? Well, I think the answer is hell. Um <laughs> oh. All right, well, that's good enough for me. That's I'll stick with that. Uh, uh, no, I, I think the surface of the sun is considerably hotter than the center of the earth. But um, That would be my choice, too. Yeah, but, you know, we don't want to talk about sin and hell and damnation very much anymore, especially in today's world. But salvation is the reason uh, Christ came on this earth to die and was buried and rose on the third day and invites us into a, a, a saving relationship uh, with him. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So I'm actually very fired up about it. Well, I think that this is a really important topic, and I hope that it will spread a, a lot of light, not just a lot of heat. Well, I like that. We're off, <laughs> off to a good start. So there are four main views of salvation. Is that something you are willing and able and ready to cover? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, 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 I think the central issue here is how does the grace of God and the human will kind of combine? And in an article I wrote, I make I identify four camps that are very popular within within Christendom and mm-hmm. within evangelicalism. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about those those four main views. Well, I, I think the way that I would uh, pitch it, uh, Bill, is this. Um, you know, we kind of ask ourselves, we, we have lots of debates uh, among Christians. For example, sometimes Christians will ask, do I choose God or does God choose me? And of course, this gets into that very hotly contested issue of predestination. Mm-hmm. Does, does God choose people or do we choose him? Or if it's both, who moves first? 
And what I do in this article and what I want to spend time talking with you about is that, you know, when it comes to salvation, when we hear the message, uh, the book of Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says that faith comes by hearing, hearing the message, the gospel message about Christ. Well, if, if I hear the gospel message, do I have the capacity to reach out and grab it? Mm. And... And once I've grabbed it, can I can I then resist it and let it go? Now, the factors in all of this in terms of is salvation graspable and is it then resistible, two issues that relate to this is sin. What does sin do to the human will? I mean, if, if Adam, our progenitor, has crashed humanity into the fall— how does our fallen nature, how does our sinfulness affect our ability to grasp salvation? And then once it's grasped, what does grace do? Does, does grace limit our capacity to, to resist it? And in many ways, I think this issue of is salvation graspable and resistible really helps us to explain or give us an appreciation for these debates that we hear about Calvinism versus Arminianism, or freedom of the will versus the sovereignty of grace. I think in some ways this helps us to kind of picture it. And if nothing else, I mean, you may not agree with me, I may not agree with you, but if nothing else, I think it helps us to understand that Christians think differently about this issue. And then maybe we can be a little bit more gracious because we understand that not all Christians think alike. Mm -hmm. Ken, when I think of Hebrews 11, chapter 6, and it says... Uh, anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. So how do we have the mental, intellectual capacity to believe he exists? And how do we come to that conclusion? That yes, he does exist. Yes. Um, this, this of course, is, is very important. Um, I think Scripture indicates that uh, God has made us in a particular way that at the core of our being— we know that God exists, N not just that we, we believe, but we have a direct awareness of God. Here I'm thinking of Romans chapter 1. So many Christian thinkers through the centuries have would say that people are born, and when they're born into the world, they possess the image of God, and part of that image of God is a direct awareness of God. Now, what does sin do? Well, I think that the normal, natural course that sin takes is we suppress that truth. We kind of push down that direct awareness of God. But that, that again, opens up this issue of, do we need grace? How critical is grace in restoring this ability to, to believe and reach out and grab the gospel when it's offered? All right. Um, so I want to going through these four main views, um, and I want to obviously open up the, the, the line for listeners as well to make uh, questions for Ken. So um, I want to go back to this, how free the human will is when it comes to salvation. Um, yeah. I, I know this is kind of a, it seems like a, a chess match at sometimes, who moves first, and God certainly came and died for the whole world. Um, there are other parties that would say, no, he came just to die for the elect. So um, how do we sort through all this, Ken? 
Yeah, let me let me kind of as simply as I can kind of give you the four perspectives. Uh, the, the first one says this first perspective, it's I think it's the the most popular and most most embraced perspective. Uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, that's kind of Eastern Christendom, modern day Roman Catholics. And then I think many Protestants who are in the uh, Wesleyan, Arminian tradition, so people like the Methodists, uh, uh, groups that would, uh, would be more Pentecostal in orientation, I think, Bill, they would say that salvation is both graspable and resistible. That is, even in sin, we still have the capacity to reach out and grab the gospel, grasp it uh, when it is offered to us. And once we have it, we still have the freedom of the will to resist it. That is, we can we can let it go. Now, this first view, uh, again, defined as salvation is graspable and resistible, has a high view of the human will and would say, even in sin and even in grace, our will can determine both to grasp it and resist it. Does that make sense? It makes so a far? ton of sense. Yes, that okay, I completely get. Yes. Now, there's a second view. This view would say that salvation is not graspable, but it is resistible. Now, um, a good example, I think, of this is conservative Lutheran theology. Conservative Lutheran theology believes that uh, human beings are enslaved by sin. And that, that's an interesting word, enslavement. So because sin has kind of taken us captive, we're not able to reach out and grab the gospel unless God gives us special grace, uh, efficacious grace, grace that enables us to then reach out and grab it. But once we've grabbed it, we can, we can let it go. So this view would be that salvation is not graspable, but it is resistible. Now, Lutherans have a very strong view of mystery, and they say, yes, you, can, you can't grab it, but you can resist it. But the elect, that is the people that God chose in eternity, uh, they'll never let it go. So that's kind of a, that's the second view, that salvation is not graspable, but it is resistible. Now, a third view, and I think this is the most common view in evangelicalism, I would identify the third view says this, that salvation is, is graspable, but it's not resistible, meaning that even in sin, God, God gives us enough grace. He woos us. He calls us. We're able to reach out and grab salvation. But once we have it, God's grace works in a particular way so that we'll never resist it. We sometimes talk about once saved, always saved. Sometimes we talk about eternal security. But notice in that third view that salvation is graspable but not resistible, it means that grace does something to our will so that we will never let it go. And, and that's, that's still restricting the will to some degree. Now, the fourth view is that salvation isn't graspable and it isn't resistible. This is really kind of the Reformed or Calvinistic view Sin has enslaved our will, and we can't say yes, and we can't grab salvation unless God enables us. And then once salvation is ours through grace, through faith, we God's grace works in a way that we don't resist it. And Reformed uh, theologians talk about 
uh, the the idea of the perseverance of the saints. God's going to ensure that you persevere. So all of these hot debates. I mean, I every time I'm on Facebook, uh, I hear you know Calvinism versus Arminianism. And one of the most disputed issues is predestination. You mean you mean to say God has favorites? He picks some and not others? Doesn't he pick everybody? I think this big controversy, in some ways, it, it's I'm not answering which one is right. I'm trying to explain why there is such dispute, because people have differing views about the ability to grasp salvation and the ability to resist salvation. Yeah, that's really helpful, Ken. I'm looking forward to continuing this discussion. Ken Samples is my guest, and I know you've got questions. Let us know what they are. Ken will answer them to the best of his ability, 877-933-2484. I'll just tell you, Ken's got a lot of ability. So we'll be right back. Faith Radio offers a free resource that will ground you in your faith each week. It's the prayer devotional email, and it's easy to receive. Simply sign up at MyFaithRadio.com under the subscriptions tab. Then you'll be sent a weekly message with words of inspiration and prayer. It's a wonderful way to connect with God and equip you for the week ahead. Once again, just visit MyFaithRadio.com, click on subscriptions, and sign up. You'll be blessed by the prayer devotional email. Welcome back to the show. Ken Samples is my guest, regular contributor on the show. I always look forward to our time together talking about uh, salvation today and the the four different uh, main views. And Ken, you've done a lovely job of laying those out, uh, only because uh, it would be so helpful. Can you condense those four main views once again, very, very quickly? Yes, I'll try to do it very quickly. Okay. the first view says that salvation is both graspable and resistible. Okay. So this view has a high view of the human capacity. So even with sin and even with grace, we can say yes, and subsequently we can say no. We can grab it, we can let it go. The second position is that salvation is not graspable but resistible. This view would say that our will is enslaved, so God has to give us unique, efficacious, special grace to allow us to grasp salvation. But once we have it, we can let it go, except for the elect. The third view would say that salvation is graspable. Even even in our sin, we can reach out and grab it. But God's grace then transforms our will so that we'll never say no. So it would be graspable but not resistible. And then finally, the fourth view, which is often sometimes the most controversial associated with Calvinism, is that salvation isn't graspable and it's not resistible. That is, our will has been enslaved. God has to choose us and enable us to choose him. But once we have salvation— he ensures that we persevere. So that would be the four four very popular views within Christendom and including evangelicalism. Okay, that's uh, I appreciate you going through that one more time. I just I know listeners are just joining the show and they're going to want to hear that and they can ask questions. One just came in and I found this interesting. This is regarding First John three fifteen, and I'll read it. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. 
and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. The question was, there are times when I struggle with anger or disdain towards a person or group of people. This first gives the implication that although I profess my faith in Christ as my Lord and Savior, my salvation is dependent on the current condition of my heart. Can you speak to this? Well, I'm really glad that uh, the person asked this question, um, and I, I appreciate their candor. Uh, it's it's certainly the case that none of us deserve salvation. None of us has earned salvation. Salvation is a free gift that comes through grace. Uh, we receive it by faith and and not by human works. But the reality is that as uh, forgiven sinners, we still struggle with sin. And and notice how impossible it is to be saved of our own good works because. It's, it's not enough not to just not murder. If you hate a person, that, that, is, that tips you into murder. Uh, I think what Jesus uh, and what John is indicating there is that if we're left to our own devices, that is, if it's left to you need to be perfect in your thought, word, and deed, then everybody fails. Uh, now, what happens when we discover that we do hate people and that we do have anger and envy and gluttony and greed and lust and pride and sloth and all of these terrible sins? I think we need to recognize that God has forgiven all of our sins, past, present, and future. We need to repent of them. We need to call upon the Lord and ask Him, ask His Spirit to continue to transform us and change us. But Christians need the assurance, the reassurance, that God loves them and forgives them, even in the midst of consistent failure, because we all fail to live up to the perfect standard that we find in Scripture. Mm -hmm. Ken, using your your four-point argument, can you speak to what um, salvation is being represented by the two thieves on either side of Jesus on the cross? Well, I, I think that's very provocative. I mean, I mean, you, when you look at it, I mean, these were what's interesting. I think about uh, that discussion that takes place among the three: Jesus being crucified, and and the one on his right and the one on his left. Uh, those people could not uh, repent in the sense of changing their life, but one trusted and and one didn't trust. Uh, now, the question of our our debate today is, how free were the will of those two people on the cross? Were they able to reach out and grasp it? Were they able to let it go? Uh, I, I, think it, I think this tells us that a person may have an opportunity to receive salvation at the very last moment of their life. But now the question is, was that a gift of grace, or were they able to was there a combination of grace and the human will? I hope that helps a little. Yeah, it helps a lot. Um, I read Ecclesiastes 3, I think it was yesterday, and it says he, in verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Yeah, wow, powerful. Yeah. Um, another question, uh, at work, an evangelical person was having a discussion about purgatory with a Catholic person. He said that since Jesus died and rose again, that there is no need for purgatory. Will you please comment on that? 
Well, you know, this is uh, this is the interesting discussion, I think, that we have. There are three branches of Christendom. There is Roman Catholicism, there is Protestantism, and then there's Eastern Orthodoxy. And uh, Christians need to be aware that depending upon the branch of Christendom of which you belong, there is a lot of common ground. I mean, look at the creeds, uh, for example, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. These branches of conservative Christendom agree on a great deal, but they also have some pretty sharp differences at places. One of the differences that Catholics uh, would and Protestants would have is over this question of purgatory. That is, uh, the Catholic idea is what if a person uh, reaches a place in their life where they are be they are believing in Christ, but they're not in a position uh, to go to heaven, but they're not in a position to go to hell. Maybe they would go to a place of purgation, a place of purgatory, where they would undergo kind of a moral transformation that would put them toward heaven. Now, Protestants, of course, have a problem with that for a couple reasons. Uh, some Protestants would say, we don't see any clear scriptural basis for that idea. And maybe another Protestant criticism would be that, you know, salvation is, is not something you do. It's something that has been done for you. So the issue of purgatory would be, a, would be one of those important differences between Catholics and Protestants. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that answer, Ken. That's really, really insightful. Ken Samples is my guest, and I know there's lots of questions when it comes to salvation and the different uh, questions you have can be asked today. You can ask, uh, and I will, I will do the asking on your behalf. 877-933-2484 is the number. Again, I'll give it to you one more time. 877-933-2484. Ken Samples is my guest. He's a philosopher and theologian. You can go to reasons.org, reasons.org, to check out uh, Ken and his work with his other colleagues at that amazing website. We'll take a little break when we come back. Lots more questions with Ken Samples. Samples is my guest. I always like when Ken comes on, I learn so much. I take notes. Ken, how's, uh, how are you doing? How's your health and all that nowadays? I'm doing really well. I uh, lost some weight and have been doing more exercising, and I'm, I'm feeling really good. Fantastic. That's a good, good report. I like hearing that. Here's a question from a listener. Uh, with the most sovereign wing of Calvinism, does it not seem that God becomes responsible for sin? Yeah, this is part of the this is part of the controversy. You know, we have this tension in Scripture of God's sovereignty, meaning He's a ruler. He He determines all things. He is the Creator of all things. Uh, you know, one might appeal to Ephesians one eleven that. 
all things come about by his will. So that's the sovereign side. On the other hand, we have human responsibility. We're, we're free agents. We have the capacity to choose. We're not robots. But yet, how do we work God's sovereignty and human responsibility together? Because Scripture seems to put them both together. Uh, obviously, you can, you can emphasize the God, to God's sovereignty to the degree of excluding human responsibility, or you can put so much emphasis upon the human side that you limit God's sovereignty. Some people think that uh, Calvinism puts too much emphasis upon God's sovereignty, but the Calvinists would respond back that the Arminians put too much emphasis upon the freedom of the will. In church history, we've had people who try to defend what we call compatibilism, that that somehow God's sovereignty and human freedom are compatible things. They don't work one against another. They don't negate or deny one another. They're both true. But now the question is, how are they true? Well, uh, some people would say uh, uh, compatibilism. Others would say, for example, uh, middle knowledge, uh, uh, Molina was a Catholic thinker who tried to bring the, uh, together the idea that God can be sovereign and people can be free. So uh, this is kind of kind of that debate, and this is what I I hear all the time on Facebook. And here's my concern, Bill. I think that when we when we disagree so vocally from one denomination to another, or from one church to another, or from one branch of Christendom to another, the non-Christian listens to this and says, wow, these Christians can't agree, they're not unified, why should I consider Christianity? That's why I think it, disagreeing among Christians is important, and it's needed, but it needs to be done with the right spirit, and I don't think we should do it in the presence of non-believers, or if, or if we do— we should start out talking about where we agree. So I wish a Calvinist and an Arminian, when they sit down, would first talk about, well, where do we agree? And how important are those agreements? Then we can move to the disagreements. And I think a lot of times in light of unity, it changes the whole transformation of the debate. It changes the demeanor. And so for me, I want to... Uh, I want to pursue the truth, but I care deeply about unity, and I want to do it all with charity. Mm -hmm. That's so wise, Ken. I mean, let's start with what we have in common. Yeah. I like that very much. There's a listener that was uh, wondering about just praying, who, and, and she feels like she's just talking to herself. Um, and she doesn't feel secure in her relationship with Christ. So how can you explain trusting Christ over trusting what's going on in your own mind? Yeah, that's a that's such an important question. And again, I um, I appreciate somebody who would communicate that and you know admit their own doubts and vulnerabilities. I I think I'd say a couple things to it. I I I would say that uh, Scripture tells us that God is always there. You know. Uh, God is everywhere. Um, God is right here at this moment. Bill, you and I are talking, and people are listening and sending their questions in. God is listening to this. God is everywhere present. So there may be times in our life where we're depressed or we're lonely 
or we're deeply frustrated or angry, and somehow God doesn't feel close to us. But Scripture tells us that He's always there. He's there when you're depressed. He's there when you're in pain. He's there all the time. And a lot of times we have to be careful that we don't go by how we feel or the circumstance and read God's Word, that God is everywhere present. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. The Lord knows about our difficulties and troubles. You know, what's interesting is, I remember the atheist Christopher Hitchens, he said, if God exists, it's like living in North Korea. God is always intervening. He's always getting into your business. You're <laughs> never alone. Well, the contrast to that is St. Augustine. St. Augustine says, no, God is always there. He He's closer to you uh, than a friend. He is closer to you than a lover. God is always there caring for you. And so I agree with St. Augustine, and I would encourage our listener, um, realize what Scripture says. Scripture says God hears everything you say, cares deeply about you. Don't give in to your feelings or your sense that he's not there. Uh, that might be the result of just your emotions, your psychological state, or maybe your sinful condition. Uh, but the Lord is always there with us. Mm -hmm. Now, Ken, would you say that some of that is a lack of biblical knowledge and understanding? I mean, if I know four phrases of French and I go to France, I'm in trouble. Well, I, I, I think that it, I think one of the most important things in living the Christian life is is knowing basic Christian teaching, being familiar with what God has revealed in His Word. Uh, I think there are many times, uh, you know, uh, faith is faith is uh, both a strong and a fragile thing. Sometimes we feel God is close to us. Sometimes we feel He's uh, far away. But Scripture says He is always there. So yeah, your knowledge of the Bible, your knowledge of basic Christian doctrine— these are things I think we have to place in our heart and in our mind, teach them in the church, reassure people, because, you know, when suffering comes, you're going to have, you may have lots of doubts. When suffering comes, everything feels wrong. Everything feels out of sync. But that's when you can go back to these basic teachings that you've received. So, yeah, um, I, you know, I like to say the church is not is more than a school, but it has to be a school. It has to be a place where we teach people about what it means to be a Christian, our beliefs, our values, and the way we live our life. And if Satan, the great counterfeiter, is going to do what he always does, which is just take God's truth and reverse it, and God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you always. I will send the Holy Spirit as your comforter. I guess the only approach he would, Satan would have would be to say, eh, you're going to end up alone. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, we, uh, there is a thing called spiritual warfare. There is a malevolent force uh, in the universe. Uh, you can exaggerate uh, the devil or you can min un minimize the devil, but there is spiritual warfare. Then there is the, the psychological voice in the back of our head that makes us doubt and question and be very insecure. Or we can open up God's Word. 
the inspired word of God that speaks to us and, and tells us that, that God loves us, God has forgiven us, God knows what's going on in our life, and he cares. So rather than Hitchens and the North Korea, I agree with St. Augustine, God is closer to us than any friend could be, than, than any brother could be. He's closer to us than any lover could be. That's the good Lord that, that came to us to, to take away our sin. Mm-hmm. Okay, Ken, if God's grace comes pouring into our life, and, and we've received God, and we've re- received Christ through faith, so we've got this grace that's poured into our life, is that grace such that it will never allow us to then turn around and reject what we've believed, reject our salvation in any way? Well, of course, this is part of that discussion we're having. This is part of the reality. Christians have uh, a lot of agreement. There is a lot of unity and common ground, but there are Christian theological traditions who would answer that question a little differently. You know, some people would say, well, the human will has been kind of negatively affected. It's been damaged, but cooperating with grace, we can say yes, but, but even with God's grace, we remain autonomous agents. We, we remain volitional creatures, and we can say no. Other Christians would say that God's grace um, begins to transform us. It makes us genuinely free and complete and secure so that we would never say no. Um, and and so I tend in the latter category, but I think it's important to, to understand where Christians are coming from. Uh, some would say you can resist grace right up to the end. Others would say, no, that grace transforms you so that your will is secure in Christ. Mm-hmm. Good answer. Thank you for that. Another listener has asked a question about prayer. She um, He or she says, as an introvert who doesn't speak well in groups— our small group at my church prays together, and I have a hard time praying because I don't feel like I'm praying. I feel like I'm talking and trying to get my words together as to be appropriate for a public display. I pray fine on my own. Do you think we're required to be able to pray as a group or in a group? Yeah, the, boy, you have such uh, you have such authentic listeners. I you know, have- Ken. You have listeners that are, they share their heart, they, you can tell the love they have for the Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, and that says something about you, Bill. They must feel comfortable to, to be able to say those things. Look, you know, it, I, I think this question is an important one. Um, introverts and extroverts are, are often very different. Uh, I know at work, uh, I have a friend who's an extrovert. I'm an introvert. And what the part of what that means at a meeting is I never talk out loud. I never process my thoughts in the presence of others. I always think about what I want to say, and then I say it. Well, people are very different. Um, prayer is essentially about communication with the Lord. I think sometimes in our prayer groups, we kind of uh, communicate to people that everybody needs to pray the same way, either out loud or publicly. I think prayer is a dynamic thing. Uh, sometimes prayer can be completely on your own. You can be very quiet. You can be silent, but you're communicating with the Lord. There may be other times where you pray in a group, you, you pray verbally. Uh, n- none of that is wrong or right, but I don't think 
any Christian should feel like, well, I have to pray this particular way. There are sometimes I pray out loud. Uh, there are other times I'm completely silent. Uh, sometimes I pray with others. Sometimes I pray alone. Uh, there's we shouldn't force we shouldn't feel like we're forced to follow uh, particular rules. I agree with that. Ken Samples is my guest. Reasons.org is his website to go learn more about him. We're going to take a little break. Let me know what questions you have. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Be right back. We are back. Ken Samples is my guest. And if you've got questions, let me know what they are. 877-93-FAITH. Question, Ken, are there different degrees of salvation? Is it something progressive? An interesting question. Well, that, that is a very interesting question. Uh, from a biblical point of view, we, we certainly distinguish uh, justification justification, sanctification, and glorification. That is, justification is a judicial act where God declares us to be acquitted, to be forgiven of our sins. That happens in a moment. Sanctification is a process where God is changing us and transforming our moral character. So that takes place over a period of time. And then glorification will happen in the presence of God, where we'll be totally transformed. So we could say that I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved in in the sense that uh, I have been saved because I'm justified, I'm being saved because I'm being morally transformed, and I will be saved in that final sense where, I, where I'm transformed in the image of Christ. But it's critical, I think, to understand that justification is the ground for our sanctification and later glorification. It all comes by grace through faith in Christ. That's a great answer. All right. Now, we obviously agree, I think you and I can, that salvation is the most extravagant gift we'll ever receive in our lives, right? Undoubtedly. Yeah. Undoubtedly, Yeah. So there must be some trick that the enemy has up his sleeve to try to get us to believe that there's that it's not a true relationship, that there's some false assurance of salvation. I, I, I think so, uh, Bill. You know, C.S. Lewis said that uh, Christians tend to either become obsessed with the devil or ignore the devil. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would say that uh, in Scripture— uh the demonic is is always connected or often connected with false teaching false gods false christs false gospels so if you really want to know the business that the devil appears to be into it's in confusing people deception and that's why it's so critical to be discerning uh to be reflective to be a, a student of god's word and recognize that we are thrown uh these deceptive ideas uh, and we have to uh, resist them and embrace the truth. 
All right, Ken, I think there's a passage in Acts, see if I can get it here, Acts eleven fourteen, and he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So now I've, I've heard the household reference a couple of times uh, with Paul and the jailer. Uh, how do you understand that if someone comes to faith and they're saying, you know, that you and your household? Well, that is uh, that is a, is a disputed issue. Obviously, we're dealing with the first century. We're, we're dealing with people who met in homes, uh, and uh, we may even de- be dealing with people who would uh, uh, bring their children uh, with them. And so, how does how does God deal with this? And this is a good question in light of our conversation. Is salvation purely and solely an individual thing, or does God's grace fall on people groups, on families? Uh, And this relates to questions like baptism, Mm -hmm. infant baptism, and things of that nature. So it's not an easy question to, to explain or understand, but I think it does, again, relate to this idea of people being in a covenant relationship, people being part of households. Uh, and there are Christians uh, who believe in infant baptism, who believe that uh, that that salvation uh, includes grace that's extended to families. And so, um, uh, again, uh, some some differing ideas within Christendom. Mm-hmm. Ken, when we talk about God being the rock of our salvation, is that traced back into the Old Testament? Yeah, I mean, there there are a lot of metaphors. There are a lot of ideas. I mean, how do we think about God? Uh, the great uh, Catholic philosopher Thomas Aquinas says all of our language of God is like an analogy. Well, you know, you 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 go out to some of the national parks and you see these rocks, these boulders. You see the foundation. You see how strong, how firm they are. Well, you know, the psalmists in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets, they describe God in, in analogous ways. And so God is the rock. He, he is unmoved. He's the foundation. He's the person we can completely trust in. So these ideas are found in the Old Testament, and, and we see them from time to time in the New Testament. I appreciate that as well. I mean, you do hear a lot of expressions about salvation and I think that's uh, important that we we dig into God's Word to find out uh, where they come from and and how we should be understanding them. Um, yeah. So, do you understand that at some point God will draw everyone to Himself and give them an opportunity to uh, make a decision one way or the other? Well, that's that's again a, a very critical part of what we have uh, been discussing. I think in a in a real sense. Uh, everybody has the benefits of the grace of God. Um, mm-hmm. for, for example, all of us are made in the image of God. Uh, that's a unique feature that all people have. It's not true of the animals. It doesn't appear to be true of the angels. So we're made in the image of God. Uh, part of that image of God, I think, would include our conscience, kind of an inner awareness of God. But we also have general revelation the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day by day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display wisdom. And we have common grace. God, you know, God, when when it rains and the sunshine, these are all gifts from God. So he has many benefits. 
Then there's a special kind of grace. It's saving grace. It's the grace that comes in the gospel. And um, I think the, the Christian consensus is clearly that, that God's grace is available to all people. Um, now, again, you'll get into the theological debates and, and, and the discussions, uh, but I would simply say to anybody who is wondering about it, uh, you know, you're, you are a free agent, you are a person that makes choices, open your heart, listen to the Word, reach out, and you may discover that God's grace enables you and follows through with you. Mm-hmm. John one twelve says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, when you hear the expression and people say, we are all God's children, are you ever tempted to, to correct them and say, well, we're all born in the image of God, but we're not children of his until we're saved? Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. I, I we, we all are made in the image of God. We all have his image and his likeness. But when we talk about uh, children, we're talking about becoming adopted, becoming part of the covenant. And, and being a child of God involves salvation. Uh, and so, yeah, all people are made in the image of God, and all of them have benefits. But to be a child of God is to is to know the Father uh, and to know the Son and to know the Holy Spirit in salvation. Mm-hmm. Ken, did Old Testament believers have eternal security? Well, uh, that's, a, that's a great question. I, I clearly think that people in the Old Testament had doubts. They wrestled with ideas. But I, I think even when you look to Moses and you look to David and you look to Abraham— I mean, these were people that made some major mistakes and committed some pretty big sins, but I think all of them had confidence that that God's grace would forgive them, that that God would love them and care for them, and I think they did have assurance. Mm-hmm. And then what would you say to a person who says, oh, you know what, I just don't feel saved? Well, I would say, welcome to the group. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, I think I think a lot of times, uh, you know, in our lives, uh, we struggle with issues. Uh, we have difficulties. Uh, the scripture says that we walk by faith, not by sight. Uh, maybe we could say we we live by grace, not by how we feel. Um, you know, how you feel doesn't change the fact that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate and his death was an atoning sacrifice for your sins. How you feel doesn't change the fact that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. So uh, our feelings don't change the truth that God has revealed to us uh, through the gospel uh, and into our lives. Yeah, and of course, feelings are completely unreliable, and emotions are completely untrustworthy. But I'm wondering if there's even, you're, you're seeing this, maybe yes or no, and, you know, as we become more of a feelings-oriented kind of world, has that spilled into the church? I, I think it has. I, I don't think there's any doubt uh, about it. And, uh, you know, it, it's not to say that feelings are always a bad thing. God, is, God made us thinkers. He made us feelers. He gave us emotions. Uh, those are important. But as you say, they're fickle. They change. Uh, 
And again, our, how we feel about something doesn't change the objective reality of the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is always so much fun. I, I learn so much when you come on, and you are so wise. And again, I love your tone, the way you discuss stuff, and you're, um, you're just an absolutely wonderful guest. Thank you for doing this. Well, I can't believe how fast the hour goes when I'm with you and, and your callers and listeners. So it's, yeah, it's I, I'm a with pleasure. you on that. Yeah, thank you so much. Ken Samples has uh, been my guest. Go to reasons.org to learn more about Ken. And that's uh, all for today. Thanks uh, to Fuad Masri for coming on in Hour 1 and Ken Samples in Hour 2. If you missed any, you can always head over to myfaithradio.com and hit it, uh, hits play right from the beginning. Have a great night, everyone. I'll see you tomorrow.